morning, everybody. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And I'll be continuing in our study of Mark's gospel. It's funny, Steve, you were talking about knowing and, and not knowing. I, perhaps you've heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss. I once had a classmate I was talking with her and she was talking about calculus class she was taking. I said, I know nothing about calculus. And she said, ignorance is bliss. Uh, but uh, it's not always bliss, right? Uh, the guy who tells the police officer that he didn't know he was going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit find that ignorance is not bliss. And the guy that ends up in the ER tells the doctor that he didn't know what would happen if he stuck a fork in the outlet socket find that ignorance is not bliss. Or the girl who comes to the test and didn't know that she had a test that day Again, ignorance will not be bliss. And in fact, sometimes ignorance can be downright dangerous. And in our passage today, in Mark chapter 12, we're going to find that kind of ignorance. An ignorance that is dangerous. Uh, it's an ignorance that marked the Sadducees. And it was leading them to eternal disaster. We'll pick that up in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 6, 18, rather. Reading that in just a moment. For those jumping in on the study here, we've been moving through Mark's gospel. Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee, and he goes about preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance, healing people, casting out demons, showing his authority and his identity, and he does this for three years in the northern part of Israel throughout Galilee. And then the time comes, and it becomes time for him to go to Jerusalem, and he begins that journey. And the rest of the gospel, he's on the way until he gets there. And then the first ten chapters have covered three years of Jesus' ministry, and then the last six chapters of Mark's gospel all hone into about a week. And we slow down to a crawl. And at this point, there is a controversy raging. Jesus is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders. They're confronting him, and he's responding. And so we're, we've seen the, the Pharisees and the Herodians come, and test Jesus last week, and now we'll see the Sadducees in their challenge for Jesus in Mark 12, verse 18 and following. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. 
Father, this morning we do come before you and confess uh, so many things that we don't know. We stand on so many things that we do know that you have revealed. And we say thank you, Lord. And there are things that we don't know yet, Lord, that we hope to learn while in this world. And we know, Lord, that there are things that only you understand and that we don't understand. And we wait for someday for you to explain that. We pray that you would help us this morning for the things that you have revealed to us, Lord. I pray that you would help our minds to understand it and our hearts to grasp it, Lord. That you would give us a willingness and an eagerness to obey that which you have revealed. You are God and there is no other. And so this morning we come to you and we ask that you would be our instructor by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at Jesus' response to the Sadducees, uh, he's going to call them out on their ignorance. So I think as we look at this passage and see what it's calling us to, the main call I think for us here is to know the scriptures and the power of God. If they have hit a sandbar, if they, if their whole operation has sunk on ignorance of the scriptures and the power of God, then we would want to be people who know the scriptures and the power of God. We're going to look first at their ignorance of the scripture and then at their ignorance of the power of God and consider ourselves in light of it. In this next confrontation that we see here, the Sadducees uh, step up to the plate to challenge Jesus. Again, I've mentioned already the, the Pharisees had come with Herodians and asked about taxes. Do we pay taxes or do we not pay taxes? And Jesus has answered that question in such a way that they marvel at the way that he did not get entrapped by the question they asked. Uh, here, the Sadducees come with their own question. Uh, and before we look at their question, we might ask, who are these people and why might they want to challenge him? Who are the Sadducees? Uh, the Sadducees were a group within Judaism. There were multiple groups. Some are mentioned within the Bible and some are not. We read about them outside of the Bible. The Pharisees are, or the Pharisees are one main group and the Sadducees are another. Uh, at this point, the Sadducees are about one to 200 years old as a movement. And that's why we don't ever see them mentioned in the Old Testament, because they didn't exist at that time. They were a group that sprang up between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Now, if the Pharisees had a patron saint, it would be Ezra the scribe. They looked to Ezra and the way that he taught the law and kept the law, he lived it out, and that was the guy they would have looked to. The Pharisees would have said, Ezra's our boy. He's the guy that we want to follow. If the Sadducees had a patron saint, it would have probably been Zadok the priest. If you remember Zadok under David, he was a righteous priest at that time. In fact, Thayer says that that's probably where they get their name. It doesn't sound that way so much, but Zadok in the Hebrew would have been Saduk, and you get the Sadducees. You could call them the Zadokites. Maybe that would make more sense. They probably got their name, and they were, of course, the priestly class. They would have been getting their name from a priest because the, the Sadducees 
were over the temple complex. They, they were a smaller group than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a much larger group. I think there was something like four to 6,000 Pharisees. Uh, the Sadducees were a much smaller group, but they were filthy rich. The Sadducees had good money, they had deep pockets, and they had a lot of power. They were very important players in the leadership of Israel. Uh, and they were no friends to the Pharisees. We see them interacting uh, and not always interacting happily in the Bible. Uh, they, in fact, the Sadducees had a very different understanding of the scriptures than the Pharisees. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the Pharisees would have accepted much of what we call the Old Testament, would have seen that as inspired. The Sadducees only accepted the books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible were the only books that the Sadducees accepted. Uh, beyond that, they had a, a different lifestyle than the Pharisees. The Pharisees kept to the, the, what was called the oral traditions and the teachings of the elders and the fathers, and they had a very rigorous kind of life. And the Sadducees did not follow all of that. Um, it wasn't that they were blatantly immoral. They just uh, they, they didn't follow the scruples of the Pharisees. Uh, and they also had a lot of different beliefs from the Pharisees. Uh, in our passage right here, Mark chapter 12, verse 18, Mark notes that they don't believe in the resurrection. They, they didn't believe in the afterlife. In Acts chapter 23, verse 8, it says they don't believe in either angel or spirit. Uh, the Sadducees would have fit in very well with our secular materialistic age. They, they didn't see anything beyond this life. They thought that humanity had a, a body and a soul, but when you die, that's it. Lights out. Nothing follows death for human beings. That, that's how the Sadducees understood the world around them and the life that they lived. The world that was right in front of them was all that there was and all they believed in. And so perhaps that would make sense for why they loved money so much. And they did. When Jesus cleanses the temple, that we saw a couple episodes ago here, uh, the, that kind of rebuke, must have fallen squarely on their shoulders. When he rebukes them for turning the house of God, should have been a house of prayer for the nations, turning that into a den of robbers, that would have fallen on the shoulders of those who first of all loved money and second of all regulated the temple and allowed that. They were probably the ones who made the most money off of the racket that was going on at the temple. So I think that probably gives us some evidence of why they might have hated Jesus. Jesus came in, and rebuked them publicly, and now they come here and seek to return the favor. In our passage here, they come with a question that is meant to stump Jesus. Uh, they come with their prepared question and ask it to him. Now, in all likelihood, they'd been asking this question to the Pharisees for a while. Uh, if they're coming to Jesus with this question publicly, it's probably because the Pharisees didn't have an answer to it. They, the Pharisees believed in the afterlife, they believe in the resurrection. Uh, and you could imagine these two groups arguing back and forth. And so they've got their question to stump Jesus, and, and they come and they bring it. Uh, it's the story of one bride for seven brothers. I have to imagine that would make a pretty depressing musical. Uh, first, when they come to Jesus, they invoke the law of Leverite marriage. Now, that sounds probably weird. What is Leverite? Uh, Lever is the Latin word for brother-in-law. And what it means is, uh, we see this in, in the first five books of the Bible. 
if a man marries a wife and he dies without leaving any children, then his brother, the next in line, would come and marry his widow and raise up children for the brother who had died so that his family name and line didn't just get snuffed out. This was a, a way of uh, helping as well this widow out. Uh, it was within the Mosaic law, and they cite that. You know, this is in the law of Moses. Again, it's in the tradition that the, the Sadducees would have accepted. And they press a story to him. A man takes a wife, and he dies without any children, and his brother steps up to the plate, but he has to bow out of life without adding any children to the mix, and so on and so forth, all the way through these seven brothers. And then last of all, the widow dies without any children. So in the afterlife, whose wife is she? Is she the wife of the first guy, second guy, three or seven? Which one? Which one is it, Jesus? They're asking him. Their goal is to make Jesus be left out there looking foolish. Uh, and this type of argument is the reductio ad absurdum. It's where you take an argument and you follow it to its logical end to make it look absurd. That They're trying to extend the logic of the resurrection to the point of making it look foolish so that nobody would believe in it. And they think they have a winner on their hands of an argument. And Jesus responds by just flatly telling them they're wrong. In fact, they're very wrong, he will conclude. Why are they wrong? Jesus gives two reasons. He says, you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. That is a devastating rebuke from the lips of Jesus. They are simply wrong. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He goes on and gives his reasons for why they're wrong. First, he mentions the, the nature of the afterlife. Now, it was kind of assumed that the afterlife would be just basically the same thing as what we're living now, but maybe a little bit better. And Jesus signals the fact that in the resurrection, it's not going to be a one-to-one -one correlation. Some things are going to be different in the future state in which we will live. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 44, uh, for instance, he says that our body is sown carnal and it's raised a spiritual body. That's just one example he gives there. Uh, things are going to be different. When we are raised up from the dead, life there is going to have some difference than this life. Now, there will be overlap, but there will be some difference. One aspect that Jesus points to that's transformed is that in heaven, there's not going to be marrying. You're not going to be giving your daughters in marriage in heaven. He says that we'll be like the angels in that respect. It doesn't mean we'll become angels. It just means uh, angels don't have families like we do in this world. So in that respect, they're wrong. Uh, notice as well in Jesus' argument here, he just assumes that the resurrection is true. He, he makes his arguments based out of the fact that it is true, and he presses his arguments. Uh, and he goes beyond that to go to their scriptures. He doesn't go to just any part. You could, you could point to other places in the Old Testament where there are pointers to the resurrection in, in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus could have gone there, but the Pharisees, or the Sadducees rather, they wouldn't have accepted it. Jesus goes specifically to the books that they would accept. He references 
the episode of the bush. Of course, he's talking about the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3. Uh, remember, at this time, there aren't chapters and verses in the Bible. I mean, that doesn't come along until like the 1500s. Uh, the way that people would refer to parts of Scripture is they might pull out something that's significant from it. So it says, remember the passage about the bush. Uh, in, uh, in the call of Moses, the Lord calls out to Moses, calls him in, and he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus notes that God is not the God of the dead, but he is God of the living. Now, it's not as if God told Moses, you know, I'm the God who, who used to be the God of Abraham when he had that little blip of existence on this planet. He says, I am the God of Abraham, currently. God is currently, even today, the God of Abraham. Abraham is not alive in the flesh, but there is some real sense in which Abraham is still alive. He is with the Lord. There will be a time when Abraham's soul will be reunited to his flesh. Uh, when we are raised, he will be raised as well. It's striking here that Jesus goes right to the books of Moses to prove his point. Uh, he takes the limited passages that they accept and he goes there to point this out from the scriptures. And that's why Jesus says that they don't know the scriptures. If they had read even their limited part of scriptures and believed it in faith, then they would not have opposed the resurrection when they heard about it. These people paraded around the books of Moses, but they didn't even adequately understand their own scriptures. In fact, uh, the fact that they were wrong about the resurrection uh, showed there was a disconnect in their hearts from the scriptures they were reading. But it wasn't just that. Uh, maybe you could say, well, that would, that would be hard to find the resurrection there. Uh, there were ways that they were getting it wrong on very plain matters. Remember, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees here for turning the Lord's temple into a den of robbers but the Eighth Commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. Uh, here they are, toting the commandments, but disobeying them at the same time. Now, how does that happen? How can somebody champion these commands, champion the books of Moses, and still get it so incredibly wrong? I think there's a few reasons. Uh, one reason, at least, is I believe that they had a shallow understanding of the Scriptures. Matthew Henry comments that it isn't so much that the, the Sadducees don't know the scriptures, uh, it's that they didn't understand the meaning of it. Uh, Matthew Henry says that they, they put their own constructions on it. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be guilty of that ourselves. It is so attempting to approach the Bible and impose our own thoughts on it, uh, to read what we want to find there rather than to listen to what God's actually saying. Uh, in, in that case, if we do that with the Bible, what happens is we, we go to the Bible and we're looking for affirmation of who we already are and confirmation of what we already think. That's very tempting to do. To go to the Bible, looking for the Bible to affirm who we already are and to confirm what we already think. 
That's tempting for everybody. What we should do instead is we should open the word and we should look for God to transform us. We're not looking for affirmation and confirmation of who we already are and what we already think, but we are looking for transformation from God by his Holy Spirit when we look into the scriptures. There is so much power in the word of God. Countless lives have been transformed by the scriptures. People have been set on a radically different course for the rest of their lives based off of this book and what God has revealed about himself and about us, our own hearts, his heart, and his works in this world. Entire societies have been transformed by the words of this book. People have come and walked away and never been the same. God's word still has that power today. God is still in the business of changing hearts and changing lives every day of every week of every month of every year. His word, he promises, will not return fruitless. He has promised to work through his word. I want to encourage you this morning. If you love this book, apply yourself to it. Don't just wait until you're in the mood to study the word. Set your heart to it. Make time. You know, it's, it's okay for us to get really practical about spending time in the word. And maybe that means uh, setting a time, 9 o'clock every night, get into the scriptures. I know for some of you, you would fall asleep within two minutes. So, well, don't do 9 o'clock at night then. Maybe, maybe 9 in the morning. Set some time aside to be in the scriptures. Maybe by that point, the kids are already moving and you'd, you'd have no chance of concentrating. Uh, get creative. Find a time to be in the Word. I promise you that there is more here for you to find. I promise you that there is more in your life that God wants to transform. There's more there. The Bible is like a vein of gold that the deeper you go into the ground mining, the wider that vein gets. The people who I found who love the scriptures the most are those who know it the most. The, the people who are most, they see most how little they know about it are those who have spent the most time in it. Uh, it's striking, and when I worked in the machine shop and other places and school, uh, people who boasted, well, I, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. And they have strong opinions, and you ask them, where do you find that in scripture? They have no idea. Uh, the people who have the highest estimation of their own knowledge often know it the least, and, and those who seek to know it, uh, they understand how little they do know yet. I want to encourage you as well, uh, in your study of the word, don't get discouraged by how much progress other people are making. Sometimes it's tempting to, to think, man, I, I'm just putzing along, and look at the super saint sitting next to me who's just eating it up. Uh, I want to encourage you not to get discouraged by that, but to keep moving forward. The Lord is working in your life in specific things that, that he's working on for you. 
walk with the Lord where he's walking with you and be content with that. Accept that from his hand. We want to be people who know the word. We don't want to be people who, like the Sadducees, they've reduced the Bible down to five books and they don't even know those five books. If we are people of the word, we want to know the word. We want to press into it and seek the transformation that is there. The second thing that Jesus says here that the Sadducees don't know, the second thing that they're ignorant of, that we don't want to be ignorant of, he says that they are ignorant of the power of God. Now that might strike us as a strange challenge from Jesus. Uh, How is it that their lack of an understanding of the power of God uh, leads to a lack of understanding of the resurrection? Uh, Or even, how is it that they don't know the power of God? I think there's at least two ways that they don't know the power of God here. One, they don't believe it. Second, they haven't experienced it. And those two are tied together here. Their whole lives appear to be based on God and his work for his people Israel. They are a group of Jewish leaders whose lives are based on the temple system. Think about the, empower, the, the incredible power of God that was on display in taking Israel out of Egypt and in bringing Israel through the wilderness, the way that the Lord sustained them for 40 years when they should have died every day, basically. And then granting them the tabernacle, and in the land gave them the temple. And the Sadducees are over the temple complex. That's, that's their pride and joy. They are a people uh, of the temple, and yet they don't know the power of God. The power of God is not real to them. They didn't believe it, and it's probably because they didn't experience it. Instead, where their hearts are at is on money. They love money. They knew the power, instead of the power of God, they knew the power of political authority. They knew the comforts of life and material blessings. They knew what the world had to offer, but they didn't know the power of God. And so it's no wonder that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't need to hope in the life after this one in their minds because they were living their best life now. They were contented in what they had achieved for themselves and Jesus was simply a threat to everything they held dear. He had the audacity to call them thieves and to suggest that they were in the wrong. Brothers and sisters, we can't take the route of the Sadducees. You know, we actually want Jesus to come into our lives and mess them up a bit. Uh, We want him to take his rightful place of residence in our lives. For every person who has trusted in Jesus for salvation, we have been filled with God's Holy Spirit. God has made his home in us, and his spirit lives in us as his temple. In a word, we have come to taste and know the power of God through his indwelling spirit in us. And as part of our saving faith, uh, we have, by faith, already been raised in Christ. You cannot be, as we were looking at this passage, one of the things I want to say is you cannot be a born-again Christian and deny the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus is just very clear. For them to deny the resurrection, they're just straight up wrong. You are very wrong. If someone denies the resurrection of Jesus, it is proof that they have not tasted the power of God yet. And for us who do believe in the resurrection, that Jesus himself has been raised and that we will one day be raised, I want to ask, do we live like we believe in the resurrection? I'm afraid to say that there are Christians who, although they confess faith in the resurrection, live as if it's not real. Let me say it another way. There are Christians who profess faith in the resurrection, and yet they live their lives like practical Sadducees. Sadly, there are Christians who live their lives in this world as if this is all there is. We don't want to live as if the things that we can taste and touch and feel and smell, that's all there is. We don't want to live as if our entire life is contained here. Paul will say that if there is no resurrection, and it says in 1 Corinthians 15, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the kind of hopelessness, the nihilistic approach to life If this is all there is, then we better wring out every single little bit of pleasure out of it we can, because this is it. We are tempted to say, yes, I do hope in the resurrection, but I also want to get everything out I can here. Brothers and sisters, if you know the power of God, if you know the power of his resurrection, then live like it. Even even if you die before Christ comes, you will live. I don't claim to understand everything about how the body and the soul interact. Uh, We have a body and we have a soul. I don't understand exactly what will happen experientially when we die. Uh, But what we do know, uh, we've been talking about I know not what. Uh, There's things I don't know. There's things we don't know yet. Uh, But things that scripture does make clear is that there is life after this one. Although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all died... Jesus said that they are alive at this very moment. Do you believe that? Abraham is alive today. Moses is alive today. David is alive today. All of those things are true because Christ is alive today. He has been raised from the dead. And it's not just that his spirit is in heaven alive, but he was raised up bodily. We're not just going to be disembodied souls floating around on the clouds. God will one day raise up our bodies. I mean, I'm only 36 years old, but I'm beginning to see that it takes longer to heal. Uh, my, <laughs> my body isn't what it used to be. And our bodies do wear down, and they do wear out. But our ultimate hope isn't that we can improve this body for the rest of our lives. Our hope is in Christ. His body was given new life. He is glorified. And he is the the prototype, if you will, for us. Our bodies will be raised again. We will lose these bodies. But they won't ultimately be lost. They will be renewed when Christ returns. Someday we are going to be reunited to our bodies if we lose them now. And we will be reunited to all those who are in Christ. There is an incredible hope in the Christian gospel. That we have an inheritance beyond this world. Yes, the Lord does so often bless us in this life 
with things that we would have never thought that he would give us. But there is a far greater blessing yet to come. We don't have to try to get everything we possibly can in this world because we have hope beyond it. We will live with Christ forever. We don't have any idea what eternity holds for us. Sure, there are some things the scripture tells us we want to believe that. Paul says that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glories that wait ahead of us. It's hard for us to get our minds around that. It's hard for us to get our hearts and our imaginations and affections around that. And yet it's there for us. Christ is there already. And he will be bringing us to himself. We have hope in that. So trust this morning in the power of God. Trust his word. Press into it to know it. Press into it to know God as he's revealed himself. Experience the power today and be eager for what lays ahead. The best is truly yet to come for us. I want to go to prayer now. I'll invite Maggie to come and pray.